Welcome to episode 93. Two. No, I think 93. It's in the 90s. Of Weekly Weights. 92 and a half. <laughs> and we're joined by none other than Robert Wilkes. Um, Robert, would you like to say hello to the listeners? Hello world, Robert Wilkes here from sunny Melbourne, Australia. From sunny Melbourne, Australia. So we're joined by the internet, so if there's any lag, I apologise for that. Now, last time we spoke to Rob, we went into quite a bit of depth about why it was that world powerlifting was being formed, the, a new international powerlifting body. And we spoke about his dispute with the IPF. Um, but today we're going to specifically talk less about politics between the federations and more about um, the new Wilkes formula, which has been which has been brought out and publicised and talk about what it means for the lifters and how it can be applied. So, Rob, do you want to quickly run us, run us through what has happened to the Wilkes formula? And actually, before we even go there, tell us about what the old Wilkes formula um, was meant to represent and how it was derived. Okay, way back when you were a lad, 1995, uh, I was actually assigned to create new bodyweight classes for the IPF, but that sort of somehow segued into also creating a new formula because judging lifting performance was one of the underpinnings of creating new fairer bodyweight classes. Because you want a bodyweight class to, each bodyweight class to include about the same range of performance as any other bodyweight class. So they led me to look at the Schwartz and Malone formulas they were then, and I concluded they were completely nuts. They crazily favoured the very light lifters in both categories, and especially Malone had these weird disjunctions where a kilo at 65 would give you a certain amount of performance, and then a kilo at 85 would give you more, and then the next kilo would give you less. <clears throat> so they were clearly all over the place. So it was almost as a sideline. But these were the days before the internet, so I had to get out you know, the goat parchment and a quill pen and write off to a number of federations, national federations around the world, ask them to lick a stamp and send me their ranking list right down to last place. And I was amazed. I actually got a fair bit of cooperation. I got Japan, uh, USA, uh, uh, Great Britain, et cetera, et cetera. So I had about 10,000 observations. Now, I might add, I'd done the same exercise 10 years even earlier in Australia uh, in a smaller way to create our so-called grading scale back then, which is still alive to this very day, this very day. But anyway, uh, it's, it's as much art as it is science because at the two extremes, very high and very, very, very heavy, sorry, and very light lifters, men and women, especially women, there's nobody home, certainly in 1995. There's no one there. Uh, heavy women had like 10 lifters in the whole world, over 80, 75 or 80 kilos, or so it seemed. And one of them was a 75 kilo woman who totaled 750. Uh, <laughs> What, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> is it a crazy outlier or is that an indicator that women of that weight can do those sort of numbers? So I came up with the formula. Uh, Lyle Schwartz, the guy who'd founded the Schwartz formula, he sent a message to the Congress where it was voted on. He wants to withdraw his formula. He says the new formula is much better. So good on you, Lyle. Um, and it was adopted. 
And it's not too bad, it did the job, but what's become apparent as the numbers have grown in Powerthing, uh, it's, it was pretty clear that it was a little bit favorable to the very light men still. It was a little bit favorable to the very heavy men. Uh, it was crazily wrong in the bench press, favored the heavy men enormously. Uh, and it was very cruel on the heavy women. So, um, and was that old formula derived off of equipped numbers? It was semi-equipped back in those days. Back, in, back then, we had uh, wraps, squat suit, which will give you uh, 10%, and bench and deadlift were raw. So it was quite equipped. Okay. So would you say that that had any impact on how the formula looked? Well, I'm going to do a bit more study because current equipped is, is another universe. Uh, but another, the current equipped world has got extreme equipment and it hasn't got big numbers. So it's going to be very hard to get reliable data because all of the Western world, as you know, has 98% switched to raw. There's still a few in the US. It's really only in Russia where it's very hard to get data where there's any sort of numbers real quick. That's another study, because there's more to come. So we're going to do individual lift, start with the bench press, then the deadlift, and might as well throw in the squat, and I'll have a look at the clip as, as the months and years go by. So, um, go on. I was going to say, so you identified these problems with the old Wilkes formula, so favouring people at either end of the spectrum in men and penalising women who were heavy. Um, yep. <clears throat> Whenabouts were you sort of aware of those um, of those fallbacks of the old method? Uh, really, only the last two or three years. Again, as the numbers and the attention has expanded exponentially in power, think of the rise of raw. Uh, it's really only the last few years. Everybody, everything was sort of quiet. Everybody was sort of happy enough with it for two decades, basically. So the Not pressure grew. I think. Uh, so finally, I sat down, and ironically, in the age of the internet. It's just impossible to get meaningful data because what's happened in the last 20 years, 20 years since 25 years, since 1995, you've got multiple federations. I want to try to count them. Somebody probably will come back to, I got to 26 and gave up. There's more uh, out there. There's probably 26 so-called world federations in Russia alone. Uh, and they all have different rules on testing, single ply, multiply, Raw with nothing, no knee sleeves, no wraps. Raw with knee sleeves, raw with wraps. Bendy bars in the deadlift, or specialised bars in each lift, thick bar on the squat, thick bar on the bench, and then bendy bar on the deadlift. It's all spiced up crazily, so you cannot get meaningful data. So really, there's Australia, which is only you know, less than 2,000, nearly 2,000 lifters. Uh, USAPL, uh, some of the IPF stuff, etc., etc., that you can put together. So it's still an art as much as it's the science. But basically the principle is to take the rate of change in the middle classes where you do have a fair bit of data and it's reasonably predictable and extrapolate that out to this two extremes. But you are faced with common sense and a bit of guesswork. So what I came up with, I'm sort of reasonably happy with. I think it should be revised perhaps more often in future, as long as I'm around, you know, every four to six years it needs to look like Sinclair Formula, for example, in wake is nothing to change every four years, uh, something along those lines. But the moment what I've got sort of makes a fair bit of sense. Um, it comes up, for example, Ray Williams 684, Taylor Atwood 681, Sergio Feathersenko 680, 
what's her name? Uh, Amanda Lawrence, 683 in the women, Jane Mello, 683, et cetera, et cetera. But sort of makes a bit of sense. And when you look at the Australian rankings, when we revised them for 219, you put the two top 20 side by side, old formula and new formula, again, it just seems to gel a little bit. So, Rob, did the actual, um, oh, goodness me, um, <laughs> did the actual mathematical underpinnings of the formula change a whole lot or was it just inclusion of the new data? Uh, it's still the same methodology. So I had a mathematician, Dean Chen from Melbourne Uni, do the actual crunching. So I create the points, the, point, the, the uh, points on the curve through wit and wisdom. So it's a regression analysis done by hand, create the points, and then it's then changed or converted into a, a quadratic. So, so one... It's the, the same mathematical mechanics. But the critical ingredient is getting the points on the curve right. So um, one of the criticisms of the old formula, and you've even said this yourself, Rob, is um, no bench press specific formula. Is that something that you're looking at? Have you looked into that yes, yet? Absolutely. The problem is there's only so many hours in the day, uh, but that's the next cat off the rank. There has to be a bench press formula because we recognise, uh, well, yeah, bench press is sort of very popular, bench press only competitions. So that's desperate and it clearly has a different curve. So there's still, in the current single formula, would be favoritism for heavy men at least. Okay. Not as, not as bad as it was. Probably you can use it with a bit of sticky tape for a little while, but a bench press only formula is next to come. Um, so Rob, was there was there any thought given on your part to actually changing the the mathematical underpinnings of this formula? I'm thinking especially there was a there was an article that Greg Knuckles wrote a couple of years ago talking about using allometric scaling to compare um, to compare right. lifters. Uh, allometric scaling is a study from Dayton University in Ohio a few years ago. They used allometric scaling and they said the old formula was great. They said if there's any criticism, it's wrong, it's a bit dodgy on the deadlift, which uh, sort of dented my faith in allometric scaling a little bit. Because I knew in practical sense that's just not true. So I you're... But yeah, so, again, sorry, I cut you off. Common sense and artistry in this. I've seen other things, you know, calculating the power production of a certain amount of muscle on a limb length of a certain length and this, that, and the other. And I suspect that's what's happened with the IPF. Somebody's just fallen in love with data and used a pure mathematical um, approach and come up with baloney. Well, I was going to say, my impression of the IPF points was that. They set a they set a benchmark of 500 points, and that represents about the median performance across all lifters in a given weight class. And then for each, or the mean performance, I should say, and then for each standard deviation above or below that, you lose about 100 points. And so, you know, were you to sit two standard deviations above the mean, your IPF score should be close to 700 or about that. Um, is that your understanding of it? No idea. No, I all I know, looked at it. All I know is examples I've seen, which sound completely nuts. Like, I think it says Will Berkman's as good a lifter as uh, Ray Williams, or something like that. That's, that's pretty close. Yeah, not too far off. Um, I did coach him that time with you, Rob, and he was asking me for tips on his squat. You get picking the wrong weights. So I remember that. Yeah, I just said go out there, Ray, and you just you just believe in yourself and squat as good as you can, and you'll do all right. And he squatted a world record, didn't he? 
I said it was all rubbish. I sent this photo back to And chest up more. Okay. Now that's good. So, <clears throat> so what advantage then, or sorry, what do you think we'll see that's going to be different at higher level international competitions that choose to use the new Wilkes formula um, when we're doing things like determining best lifter? I think you'll see a fairer competition, closer, tighter competitions. Um, again, looking at it in a practical sense, is a pretty even rating across the various body weight classes. So your examples that you gave, you mentioned Ray Williams, Fedosenko, Taylor Atwood, and Amanda Lawrence. Amanda Lawrence. So all lifters who are absolutely excellent. And you you ranked them as roughly equal with Ray being the best, but not by much. And Fedosenko, I think, being the worst, but not by much. Did that sit sort of with your logical interpretation of how good they are, each of them? Yeah, it seems to make sense. Now, there's still that question mark. The population in the middle classes is still a heap greater than the population in the extreme light and extreme heavy. But and do you, maybe there's still some bias in there. Who knows? But there's no, there's no data. There's no real way to factor in population density. Uh, there's a guy, I've got the name there, wrote a book called the, the, the Strongest Athletes or the Greatest Athletes, I remember, years ago tried to do that. Uh, he had come up with some wild formula and he's applied across all sports and factored in how many people play that sport worldwide. And he came up with some woman discus throw in Russia through 68 metres, was the world's greatest athlete of all time. It just doesn't make sense. So nobody's got a way to factor in population density into all this. Do you think so there's any risk? Because as the total pool of powerfuls keeps growing, the population of the two extremes will grow and gives a clearer picture. You mentioned the potential for bias still um, within the formula, but do you think that your subjective interpretation of which athlete, which powerlifting athlete is the greatest or most impressive informing the way in which you structure the formula could be a problem? Not entirely subjective. Not entirely subjective. The rate of change in the middle classes is extrapolated out. They're very light and they're very heavy. So can you explain that to, for the audience? Well, if, if a kilo from 75 to 76 gives you seven kilos on your total, what does a kilo from 180 to 190 give you? You then go back and say, what does the kilo from 76 to 77 kilo body weight give you? A tick less. And the next kilo body weight gives you a tick less still. You factor in or you extrapolate that drop in performance for each kilo of body, each drop and gain for each kilo of body weight all the way out to 140, 150, 160. And is there a point at which you think the formula would break down and favour somebody who just chose to get super duper massive? Because if the formula doesn't penalise you as much for gaining a kilo of body weight once you're already 180, what's to stop somebody just being 350 kilos and lifting 10 kilos more? Practicality. The old formula actually was pen and paper and it cut out the 205 kilos for men because it rolled over at that point. It doesn't quite roll over. It almost becomes flat at about 200 at the present time. And it matches reality. Uh, if you weigh 200 kilos, uh, you're going to be so thick in the hands and the legs you can barely deadlift. There's going to be question marks over your health and the capacity to train. You don't see 200 kilo, 200 kilo people in power. You see them in sumo wrestling. You might see them in truck pulling, but you don't see them in powerlifting because it's a practical factor. 
common sense factors is that they just don't perform as well. So you go. Okay, you mentioned how when you started looking at looking for data to inform this formula that there was a bazillion federations out there all with different rules. So which ones did you actually pull data from to inform your observations? I actually, strangely enough, I went back to my old data because that was useful because it was pretty standardized back then. Uh, but also uh, USAPL, IPF, Power Australia, you know, the Oceania region. Uh, how many data points did you, did you use? And how many uh, does that compare to last time? Something like 10,000 10, a year, plus the 10,000 I had longs ago. Okay, so roughly double. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I had a question about how the old score relates to the new score. Obviously, when people go into any Wilkes 2.0 calculator, they'll figure out that they have more Wilkes points now. I'm stoked about that, can I just say? Yep, so first of all, from everyone, thank you. Everybody to be happy. So 600 more or less is the old 500. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. The, the old sort of milestone for excellent performance is 500 Wilkes. Is yeah. that, that's now 600, yeah? 600, because I wanted a fresh start. I want everybody okay. to be happy, more points, not getting more, bigger tax refund. And two, <laughs> just fresh. We'll start again uh, with you know, a fairer scale altogether. So I actually don't want to get hung up on comparisons with the old system. Okay. Okay. So I'd like to change tack a little bit then um, because in, in this chat, we've spoken about the idea of like improving international competition. And you did speak about how you think that your formula has advantages over the IPF points. Um, how are some ways generally that you think we can improve international powerlifting competition? Well, uh, they've got to be fair. They've got to have legitimate drug testing, point one. But equally as important for the public is they must be presented well. It must be presented with the public in mind. It must have short, sharp sessions. It must feature the champions. It must feature the at the international level. Uh, at, at the local level, it must be fun. Uh, fun yet fair. Uh, it must be distributed all over the world, evenly. It must reach out in the fitness market, as we try and do with the FIBOs. In Australia, what's called fitness shows, but FIBOs everywhere else. Uh, it must reach out to the market and grab them by the teeth uh, and shake them up. So we reach out to the fitness market, the people who are sort of semi-interested, potentially interested, that's some foot in the, in the marketplace, in the fitness industry, and get hold of them. Uh, as you know, at these fitness shows, we draw big crowds uh, because we've got a qualified audience and we give them something to take from their extra step to get involved in power. So... And there must be... Uh, there still has to be an official sort of vibe to the whole thing. It must be real. It must be substantial. Yeah, so the event must be run security. It must be good refereeing. Uh, it must be uh, good medals. Uh, a bit of pomp and ceremony also adds to the genuineness of it all. How about um, online presence? What do you think that should look like? Uh, probably should look a lot better than what we've got, but you might have noticed just in the last few weeks even, we've been working on fixing our Facebooks, Instagrams for Australia and, and World Power thing. Uh, but there must be a presence. You must reach out to the audience and advertise your events through social media. I, I, meant, I meant more the, the streaming. Oh, yes, absolutely. What I want to get is positively pay-per-view uh, I want to get onto, we, can, we can't do it. We just haven't got the capacity to do really professional streaming. Uh, we've taken a step forward, engaged dedicated sports media 
in Germany who do world gymnastics media. Uh, they have put forward a proposal to run through from now through to the worlds in Melbourne. Uh, I've also talked to a number of these, um, not fox, not foxtails, but companies that do distribution for you, so they provide the platform. Um, well, if, if you ever need uh, two commentators, you've got two right here. Yeah, which two? There's two other guys there, are there? <laughs> no, no, yeah. but part of it is, it must be like the old wide world of sports, if you can remember that, back on Channel 9, we'd have mm -hmm. a presentation, you'd have a bit of colour, here's the country where it is, is like a you know one minute travelogue of Melbourne or Bulleye yeah, or wherever it is, where it's, the championship was held, here's some of the key competitors, here's their family story, uh, really build involvement, comes a soap opera, and then, you know, Segue into the championships and cut it because uh, streaming is one thing, but streaming can still take a long time. Even if you try and have short, sharp competitions, if you can edit it down to half an hour, an hour, and have it really sort of punchy, that's actually so much better. And that's what you can do with some of these distribution platforms. So, Rob, you know which sport did really, really well in creating like an easily watchable soap opera of athletics? It was WWE wrestling? Have you considered um, maybe incorporating a bit of that in powerlifting? A little bit, but see that goes all the way in one particular direction, which it is truly a soap opera. It's not credible. Well, I've been to I've been to at least one WWE fight or, or tournament in Las Vegas. These people seem to believe it, but I don't think deep down they do. Well, I think but you're a bit of a Vince McMahon figure yourself, aren't you? Sorry, what was that? I, I said, I think you're a bit of a Vince McMahon figure yourself. You know, the owner of WWE, he gets in the ring, fights people. Yeah. I mean, I might step back on the platform again like he did, he did in the ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, on a more serious note, though, Rob, um, when we did our episode about powerlifting going in the Olympics and you were, our, you were our expert consultant and you didn't have very good things to say about it, but when we spoke about that, one of the big objections that we raised that a lot of people have is the perception that watching powerlifting competitions is a little bit boring and either that there's not enough star power at your average competition to keep people's attention for a long time or just that the spectacle takes too long for people to want to attend a whole competition. Are there some ways you think we could circumvent that beyond just relying on short telecasts of the highlights? Uh... Not really. You've got to make the contest move. You've got to be efficient and have you know, things that sound trivial actually add up. Having a short distance from you know, the lifters come out to the stage so there's not a gap of five, 10 seconds multiplied by 500 attempts. Uh, but having it short, 10 to 12 lifters presented 90 to 120 minutes uh, is important. We've tried way back, before you were born, we tried seven attempts. Absolutely unpopular. The titles were down. Everybody hated it. Uh, so it's very hard to alter the fundamental structure beyond the going short, sharp contest. Seven attempts. Imagine, what did you cut out? One squat, one bench. Sorry? Did you cut out a squat and a bench? Uh, it was the wild card system. So you had, a, as of right, you had to have two attempts in each lift and you could have one extra attempt wherever you wanted to have it. So you might oh. save it for your last lift or if you missed two squats, you'd, you'd have to squander your wild card to save your bacon for the third squat. But That's pretty interesting. Just, just unpopular with the lifters. It was enormously unpopular. But 90 to 120 minutes of the zone. You might have heard about World Athletics. They've got with the trend. They changed the name from IWF to World Athletics, obviously copying us. Uh, they've 
slashed their Diamond League events to 90 minutes because all research shows that's the limit of an of a audience's uh, powers of concentration. So we can do 90 to 120 minutes with 10 to 12 lifters. So for the live audience, it can be made to work. The package, uh, you can reduce that to an hour, say, or half an hour, but it adds colour. Again, the travel logs, the personal stories, and all the rest. So I think it, its current format is workable as long as the session is made short and sharp with interesting lifters. And the same at the local level, multiple short, sharp sessions is better for the family who comes to watch, the gym mates who come to watch, for the lifters themselves. And you get resistance from meet directors say, oh, I've got to run two sessions, and not one. But you can run them back to back in almost the same time and everybody's happier at the end of the day. And we, you might have noticed we've changed our fee system for local contests. We pay per session now to encourage them to run more sessions. You might put, instead of putting 30 lifters through in one session, put 30 lifters through in two sessions, it'll pay you double. So not to plug Alex and my services as commentary, but I think powerlifting the sport also benefits enormously from having MCs and commentators who are explaining context. Yeah, we need to tap whatever Gino's got and bottle it and sell it and create more good MCs. We've got Elias in Australia, in Cairns. He's the only one who sort of comes close to Gino. He's more like a classy version of Gino. I might add Gino will be here at Sydney in May for our contest. Uh, and also in Melbourne, October, I'm pretty sure. But the live MC adds the colour enormously. I mean, you know yourself, you've got a dead MC, the whole thing just dies. But also you need the commentators on the streaming or the, or the telecast. Well, something in terms of the, you know, what, what I would add, sort of content. what I would add is that for the audience, it's crucial to know the context of attempts and what, you know, what tactical thinking might be underpinning it and where it's going to move people. And so perhaps adaptations to the scorecard that actually more easily visually demonstrate what's riding on a lift might make it a better spectator sport. Unreal. It is real. It's a real drama. It's a, it's a narrative. It's a story. It's a exactly. In the old days, you used to have the big manual scorecards, uh, scoreboards. You could actually track it pretty easily. You had a guy on a, uh, standing up there with a stick putting up the numbers. So you can actually see very clearly with next lifter and the computer system, the audience have got no clue. They can't read the computer screen, possible. So definitely, good MC. Is anyone, doesn't open powerlifting have a system where you can run competition and it gives you those prompts about placings and stuff as it goes? Yeah, but the audience, including the people in the cheap seats at the back, have got to know if it's on a computer screen, they're not, they're not going to see it. They just don't read it. Now the coaches do, the lifters do, because they're right there but the audience cannot see the classic TV monitor computer screen. It almost needs so to be like a separate scoreboard that just has um, the current, whoever the current lifter is, has everyone in their weight class up on the scoreboard in order with their totals or something. You could just have, like separate uh, like that. This weight on, you know, the old weight and bar concept, you used to have a separate weight on bar sign in the old days. So I'm gonna flip it over, but it'll say, yeah, you know, the weight. So the audience can see it's 302 kilos because they got no idea quite often. Uh, mm. And you add to that Australian record, going for first place, mm. going for best lifter overall, something like that could be done. But we put in a rule that the referees now, for example, are expected to tell the chief referees, expected to tell the MC why a lift has been readed. So the MC can then announce it to the world. Yeah. So you could have better visual prompts and you absolutely need a good MC. 
So what about the, um, the, the IPFs holding the Sheffield competition coming up soon? And I think the biggest draw card for that is the, the money going into it. How do you think sponsorship money and stuff can help grow international competition? It creates a spectacle, a bit of a buzz. I'm not convinced it's a good return on investment. Ben Banks is really smart. What he's done with SBD is brilliant. I'm not convinced this is a brilliant move though. What could he have done with those 300,000 pounds? I tried to get a message to him through John Tran saying, listen, cancel Sheffield, give me 300,000 pounds. I guarantee you 10,000 USBD customers in China. I'll spend my 300,000 pounds on the ground there, creating new clubs in China. So if you've got the budget, yeah, it creates a little bit of buzz, but it's 15 minutes of fame. It's fleeting and it's gone. Yeah, where powerlifting is, we need to be more on the ground. What do you think of the concept of the Sheffield generally, though? The idea of an all-star lineup of people who are good across all weight classes competing head-to-head. Do you think that has what it takes to create this sort of soap opera idea around powerlifting? Uh, yeah, it's 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 good. It's maybe it's a piece in the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, you would really need a good commentator there because if it's done on points, the audience is going to have even less clues to what's going on. So you need, need what we said before, a really uh, involving commentator who can keep up with the figures and tell them exactly what's happening or visual prompts or whatever. Uh, and the audience reacts to head-to-head competitions. They must be able to understand it. So same lift, you know, one lifter versus another in the same bodyweight class is actually more understandable. Well, I think one of the perceived issues with powerlifting is that the majority of weight classes, even at the international level, there's there's one or two absolutely dominant competitors. There's often not enough depth of field for people to see six or eight people who are really vying for the win. Um, and yeah. so perhaps things like the Sheffield can get around that. Like you said, if it can be communicated to people well that they are in direct competition. And what, we, what can be done at a regular championship is splitting groups, splitting bodyweight classes. So the best three 77s and the best three 85s and the best three 94s could go in one session. And the others, the strugglers with life in the D-line earlier in the day. That's another way of doing it. All right. Now, Rob, I don't... You know, non-linear thinking about how you structure a competition is important. I don't think we could... ...up body weight by body weight. So, for example, in Melbourne, we've got the so-called pro show on Saturday night, which will be separate ticket admission. So the best lifters will go in that pro show, whatever body weight class they are. Uh, and, you know, we're splitting classes, but yeah, it's show business, such as life. Okay. I don't think we could fairly let you go unless we ask some questions about the role of world powerlifting in the world landscape. Um, it's now been a couple of years since you started world powerlifting. Um, how relevant of an international federation do you think you've become? I think we, you know, as I say myself, we've done pretty well considering. I knew there'd be a whole heap of people. You know, the fantasy view people had at the beginning was just open the doors and everybody will rush in because they want fair competition. But, you know, unfortunately, people do what's convenient before they do what's right. Uh, so we've done really well in getting, you know, however many nations we've got around the 20 mark uh, involved. We've done really well in terms of exposure. We've done really well in getting to China more systematically than anybody else. So I think we've done a, a really good job in that sense. But there's a fair way to go, as I knew there would be. So you speak about um, what's convenient and what's right. 
given that people are probably going to be inclined to vote with their feet and go towards the the federations that are biggest and most prestigious, do you re- do you realistically foresee world powerlifting overtaking the IPF as the predominant international fed? Don't know. In a way, don't care. I'll, I'll leave aside the legalities, which are still playing themselves out. There still has to be an IPF that legally exists. It is not guaranteed. Uh, if we were the second banana, if we were, you know, one, one FC versus UFC, uh, and so be it. We could, we could live with that. If we were doing a good job in our own right, we're financially sustainable, and we're doing the right thing on testing and presentation and meat bids and all the rest, and we were in that perennial number two for a while, we would live with that. Do you, think, do you think it's acceptable, though, to lifters, particularly those who do have do have international competitive aspirations, for you to say it's not that important whether we, whether we become the predominant federation, whether we attract every high-level lifter, when most, like the ones who really care the most are staking their international competitive aspirations on the field that you can draw to competition? Yeah, still, the, the one thing IPF's got is uh, the biggest raw worlds. I, you must remember, to them, it's a secondary worlds. They still claim the equipped worlds, the mm-hmm. world championships for various dubious reasons. Explained to you, uh, Look, powerlifting is becoming more and more fractionated. There's more and more federations. Since I did my count of 26 plus 18 months ago, I reckon there's another 20 sprung up. Uh, it just amazes me. Uh, it's just the way it is, you know. There's English Premier League and there's the European League and there's uh, IPL cricket and, and whatever. Uh, it's getting so spread out now. I think that factor is fading away. Why is it then, given that there is this big landscape of global federations, why is it that you chose to start your own and not either work within an existing federation to bring it to prominence or work for change within the IPF when you were when you were, say, an executive yourself, when you were in charge of testing extensively. Sure, like it's deeply, profoundly, and utterly corrupt. I mean, we got pushed out because we objected to corrupted drug testing, corrupted hotel arrangements at championships, et cetera, et cetera. And we were pushed out, same as all the other good guys. You know, you know, I've told you his name before. Sasumi Yoshida from Japan was pushed out. Manny Kozaravi was pushed out. Anybody who stand up stood up for what was right got the foot pass. So it wasn't... An option. I fought along those lines for a long time, long, long time. I was on the executive for 25 years, and it kept getting worse rather than better. But it just became not a viable option. But then, once that happened, looking around the landscape, it was just weirdsville. What's out there? Uh, most of them don't want testing, or they have pseudo testing. Or they have some philosophy on equipment, which is you know crazy. So I multiply with bendy bars or this, that, and the other, wearing castanets or whatever it was. Uh, a lot of them were small businesses. They said, "No, I've got the World Championships of Idaho, and that's what I want. That's my my uh, second job." Uh, or I've got my little bit of turf, and I'm in you know southern. Belgium or Botswana land or something, and I don't want anybody to upset my apple cart. It just didn't seem to be a viable option out there, a viable vehicle to get hold of. And so what then would be your strongest pitch to either lifters within Australia who've chosen to stay with the IPF 
or or lifters or even administrators of federations internationally that are with the IPF, what is it the world powerlifting offers that would make it a better alternative in your eyes? If you love the sport, this is the pure sport. We tweak the rules to make it lifter friendly, yet still keep it you know, a legitimate sport. The people in, who run it are only interested in the sport. You know, the, you know, the Julian Perry's, the Steve Lucidges, the Yi Chen Jus of the world, the ones that are not in it for money, they're in it for the sport. Uh, we run efficient competitions. Uh, world championships are one thing that's going to improve, and that would definitely be better in Melbourne. We've got unique exposure to the fitness shows and the other events we run. It's people who love the sport and want to see it do well, want to present it well, want to reach out and make the sport expand. So they're making this sport drive. And I haven't seen that in any other federation. How about within Australia? We've obviously seen the emergence of APU, um, now the APL, and obviously GPC is growing. How is powerlifting faring among the other federations? Um, how is powerlifting Australia faring among the other federations in Australia? market share. It's very hard to tell. So there's no secrets. Our cash paying membership last year was 1,847. That's not count. That is absolutely dead strict. That's not counting extra coaches who've done the course or supposedly operating as coaches. That's not counting hundreds and hundreds of school kids. You know, we just keep a lid. We get, we get thousands of school kids doing it. So, you know, our reach is in the few thousands. Uh, no one else is anywhere near that. I've had to study the numbers. The GPC isn't in, in, uh, growing. The GPC is declining. GPC's heyday was about three years ago when they claimed about 1,000, they had about 500. And now GPC is, no one knows who GPC is. The son of GPC, was cousin of GPC, the old hardcore GPC at Frankston. I don't know what GPC is these days. APU is you know, maybe 10 to 15% of us, and they just lost a huge chunk in Perth, where they had, ironically, GPC Perth pumping them up and switching labels there. So there isn't anything substantial. There's a never-ending mix master of initials coming and going. And the initials tend to linger, and the faces behind them tend to change. Like Capo's had about six versions, and the last I heard it was sold for $3,000 to a guy in Perth, and it's two gyms now. Uh, these outfits just come and go, come and go, come and go. That was, we've got the correct sellable product. Pure powerlifting, accessible rules, genuine drug testing. That's where the market is. I think I guess what you're missing the most then is the competition at the highest level. So, and yeah. obviously you mentioned that earlier that you have more growth um, to make within the powerlifting landscape. How do you intend on creating more growth um, worldwide? Well, we're going to make the world championships better. We're going to ensure, and it's it's definitely going to be more attractive, better run, have more good lifters in Melbourne in October, virus, virus permitting. Uh, that's another little worry on the, on the landscape there. But uh, it's it's a process of growth. So there's political reasons we almost, we have to stall for three or four months before the Calgary Worlds and recruiting new nations. So we just started up again. Um, we'll have a different presence in the USA. Uh, in fact, that was the core why I was delayed in this podcast. Uh, we'll just do, it'll, it'll just be a cumulative growth by doing the right thing, by reaching out and actively recruiting. It's, it, it's a sales job. So every one of these new nations recruit, there's five, 10, 20 hours of sales time. It's like going door to door selling encyclopedias. You get knocked back, but you get a certain percentage and you just must persist. But the quality of the product shines through combined with the mechanism of going out there and selling it. So a final question, Rob, before we wrap up this chat, um, sort of 
all of your all of your talk about the potential for world powerlifting to grow has been predicated upon your hard work. So you know you're calling people, you're doing work on the new Wilkes formula. You yourself are driving it. To what degree do you think that your presence could also be to the detriment of of the federation? I know there are people who would consider you somebody who's very litigious or somebody who would be unashamed to make a power grab if you thought it could cement you at the top of international powerlifting. Do you think that there are people who perhaps you've alienated that won't chomp ship? And how can the federation get around that? Yes, the drug takers hate me, despise me, because I took the toys away in 1989, uh, at least in Australia, because they're you. But they're, they're the people we don't like. But I'm very acutely aware of key man risk. We try, I'm trying, we are trying to create a structure. So it's not just me. There's some of those names I mentioned before are very active. There's a nine man board. Uh, pretty much all of them are very active in their different regions. Uh, people taking various jobs, you know, from record keeper to social media to whatever else. I desperately am trying to diversify and delegate out more and more jobs. Uh, there'll be a CEO of World Power at some stage, and it won't be me. Uh, I'll just stay on the board. So the long-term plan is to make it less of the Robert Wilkes show and more of World Powerlifting so that one day you can step down. Any business, whether you like it or not, it is a business in a sense, even though it's a not-for-profit, this is a must-survive, must be able to stand on its own two feet. You run a business and you can't go away for a week or a month, it's not really a business, it's a job. Well, I think that's some sage advice to personal trainers who are listening out there. Um, we'll wrap up this conversation. We're going to take a very quick break and come right back to hit Robert with our new segment, Underrated, Overrated or Properly Rated. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 90-something of Weekly Weights. We're here with Robert Wilkes and we're going to hit him with Overrated, Underrated, Properly Rated. Uh, we've just prepped him for this off the air. So, Robert, are you ready? Uh, look, I've got to leave now. Look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what the topic is, so we've blindsided him that, with that, but are you ready? All right. Okay. Overrated, okay. underrated, or properly rated, pause squats. Overrated. Absolute poison. Kill your strict shortening cycle. <laughs> Make it work. Uh, okay, anybody who's attended a Powerlifting Australia coaching course knows this is one of the great bugbears of Robert Wilkes. Rob, can you explain why it is that poor squats are bad and why you reckon you should train benches touch and go? Because you want to overload your stretch, stretch shortening cycle, your rebound capacity, and you don't do it by practicing being slow. Does a 100-meter runner practice running 15-second 100 meters? No, he doesn't. He runs 30s, 60s, he runs downhills, things like that. Overspeed, overspeed, overspeed. So you want your squats to be fast. Your bench is a little bit more complicated, but still the front line is touch and go. It's because you're doing a heavier weight than usual. It's exactly the same movement, but it's touch and go. So overspeed, overspeed, overspeed. You do mix in pauses and blocks and other stuff. Bench is complex, but overspeed the stretch shortening cycle. What's around? But Rob, when we do when we do heavy lifts, they're as hard as they can possibly be. They go slow by nature. So what's the danger in doing a slow well, lift in training? Your nervous system and your conscious thought, your conscious volition, you are trying to be explosive. It's an it's a, admittedly it's a braced, solid sort of speed, but the intent is the volition is speed, braced type but speed. So you want speed, speed and more speed. Do you have any do you have any training practices that you use with your lifters? 
that you you have absolutely no evidence for, like you would call bro science, but you just think they work? Uh, well, there's no, there's no absolute science. There's no truth. I can't prove to you the sun's going to rise in the east tomorrow. I can pull out a fair bit of evidence, but there's no such thing as proof. Uh, but yeah, power things riddled with bro science. So people get some, you know, an obscure study or some study and twist it around and, and create a rationale. Uh, it's it's like the formula. There's as much art as there is science in being successful powerlifting coach. What do you reckon? Is, what do you reckon is the thing that actually elevates somebody from somebody who knows something about exercise to being a good powerlifting coach? Around a set of skills, they know how to program. They know how to reinforce. They know how to abuse and insult people. They know how to pick them back up again. Uh, there's a whole big picture there. It's not online. You know, it's not online coaching put into the gym. It's not just not programming. It's getting the whole picture there. But also the hallmark, as if you paid the coaching fee, you hear over and over, is a coach who can produce results consistently across a wide range of people. Don't just claim you're a good coach because you've latched onto somebody who's got natural talent can reduce results across almost everybody and can keep squeezing and juice their lemon, can keep producing the results long-term. Somebody comes into you, uh, you can add 50 kilos to their total and making them walk in front of the gym twice because they're beginners. It doesn't make you a good coach. But if you take them from 500 to 550 to 580 to 620 to 660 to 700 over five, six, seven years, that's a sign you're a good coach and you can do that with a lot of people. So what element of... Um a coach's abilities you think is the one that you see needs the most improvement? Like what are people uh, missing the most? I think they're missing everything. I mean, powerful coaching is an infant, it's a toddler. If I, I, you know, I grew up before your grandparents were born, I think. I saw, I've seen this happen in athletics where I used to be involved and you know, I used to have peripheral involvement with uh, pentathlon and fencing and weightlifting and what other various sports. I've seen this cycle where it was just all bro science, all nothingness, and those sports have gradually evolved to professional coaching. If I go to a um, sports commission or something, Australian Coaching Council meeting of coaches, it's like I'm at the accountant society. There's all these sober, soberly dressed people you know, talking a little bit about research and professional practice and this, that, and the other. Uh, if I go to a meeting of powerful coaches, it's like I'm in uh, you know, The Simpsons or something. It's all these guys proclaiming the geniuses uh, you know, on very little sort of basis, making outlandish claims and, and whatnot. Uh, there's a lot missing. There's, a, there's an ability, there's just that package of being able to integrate research and convert it into practical results, uh, of having a methodical approach, of accepting you need a whole bunch of skills. It's not just to be the best showman or have some secret master program you can just sort of punch in online. Uh, it's having a rounded package of skills makes a professional coach. So of that, that rounded of of that rounded package of skills, which one's missing the most? Which skill? In Alex yeah. specifically. Oh, well, how much time have we got? <laughs> oh mate, sorry, I, I need to leave right now. <laughs> yeah, normally you do check out at the end of the podcast, Alex. <laughs> You're lucky, Rob. He's not on his phone today. That's unusual. Oh, yeah, it's very hard to describe, but it's just being methodical in each of those areas. It's it's chipping away with each piece, of, making each each piece of the jigsaw puzzle effective and positive is the missing ingredient. Having that overview is the missing element. So jokes aside, is there an individual um, either within Australia or internationally 
that strikes you as being really the complete package in a coaching sense? Uh, I've seen some who are not too bad. I only see them at competitions. I don't know what their uh, ongoing style might necessarily be. I mean, Matt Gary's incredibly intense. I think he's going to explode sometimes, but he certainly takes it professionally and seriously and does his research. I used to like George Leggett. George Leggett is gone and he's died, but he was the consummate powerlifting coach. He's the man who sent Paul Jordan out to his 345 kilo squat depth, death, rather. Um, but he could motivate anybody, anybody better than anyone else I saw. Uh, so there's a few out there, not many. And Rob, yourself, you're known for yelling chest up at people and then telling them they're useless. How, what sort of process of experimentation led you to have your particular coaching persona? Trial and error and also, I guess, go back a step. I had my own mentors way back. Uh, somebody asked me this somewhere else in the forum. But I was guided in my athletes days in my weight training by a guy called Max Ryan, who again has passed on. Max Ryan was a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, but he had three fingers missing on one hand. Uh, he was missing determination, but he was very methodical in his coaching. Uh, I was also influenced by a guy called Victor Berish, who also passed away a few years ago. He was the 1963 world champion in weightlifting, 1964 silver medals of Tokyo in the 90s. Uh, he was just Mr. Humble, Mr. Methodical, Mr. Researcher, and Mr. Practical. And he had both of those guys, even though I figured it myself in the early years, had programs amazingly similar to what I've got now. Sure. Mate, that's all from me. Do you have another question, Alex? No, that's good. No. Good. Look, Rob, we really appreciate your time as always. Um, your last job before we let you go is just let everybody know how they can get in touch with you, where they can find out more about Powerlifting Australia and World Powerlifting and anything else you'd like to drop before you drop the mic. Okay. Well, to get in touch, we're improving our social media all the time. So worldpowerlifting.com plus Facebook plus Instagram, powerlifting.australia.com. R Wilkes at World Powerlifting, R Wilkes at Powerlifting All the answers are there. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Beautiful. guys. Chat to you next week. Thank you.